You're about to hear my conversation with our CIO of Equities, Leslie Marks. We talk all about the big drivers in markets this week. We touch on economic data in Canada, some earnings data, as well as the current state of affairs in Europe and with the yen. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with my regular guest, Leslie Marks. Leslie, welcome back. Thank you for having me once again, Matt. Well, why don't we start off with sort of a general question and just ask generally, what are you seeing as the big drivers of markets this week? Oh, it's such a juicy question, Matt. Thanks for starting <laughs> us off there. That's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think that the um, Israel-Hamas war in Gaza is certainly commanding attention around the world, but surprisingly, it's having a limited impact on markets. Hmm. So, for example, if you look at oil prices you would expect that oil prices would rise in the face of any conflict in in the Middle East. And they're actually lower today than before Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th. Treasuries would be another area where we would expect to see a flight to safety trade. And they're not really rallying. Um, Interest rates, like if you just use the 10-year as an example uh, for U.S. Treasuries, it's fairly close to its recent high of 5%. So, I mean, these are areas where you would actually expect to see some uh, market impact. Now, volatility, on the other hand, has moved a little bit higher, but actually, to give you context, not to the levels that we saw in the regional banking crisis Hmm. in March of this year. Right. So I would say the market, although, you know, we as individuals are very focused on recent events, the market doesn't seem to be too concerned that this conflict isn't going to become a, a broader conflict beyond where, where it is today. And that's something that could really change. I mean, I think that's a risk that's certainly not priced in to current markets, wherever you look, whether it's equities, commodities, fixed income. And you'd expect that if indeed that uh, conflict does broaden out into the broader Middle East, all of those asset classes would see a market increase in volatility? I would, I would expect to see that. Yeah, I think because it's not priced in, people aren't expecting that. That's something that would need to be uh, reflected in a different way. So for example, a broadening of the conflict, you would expect to see oil prices rise. And I think you would see a firmer bid for treasuries, right? even things like, uh, I know the US dollar has been uh, quite strong and, and that's sort of more related to, I think, the economy. But I think that the US dollar would get even more uh, momentum behind it as a, a flight to safety trade. But, you know, thinking about the big drivers moving away from the war, I think earnings actually have been a big driver for markets. Hmm. So I was looking at some of the earnings that we've seen reported over the last couple of days. And I always look for something that would be a bellwether for the economy. And 
So one example of that would be yesterday we saw Caterpillar report their earnings. And they're a great example of a bellwether because they serve the construction sector, the mining sector, the energy sector. Right. And their earnings, the, the stock had had a good run through the summer. Earnings were uh, quite good. But um, more importantly, the company's backlog uh, was weak. And that really had a negative impact on uh, price performance, obviously. And I think that's a real example of, you know, even though we're seeing strong data uh, in the economy, that some of the forward-looking expectations are starting to get ratcheted down. Another example, and I think this is a really important one, was uh, JetBlue, which was also hit hard after reporting their earnings. And the reason I think this one's really important is because Travel was such a strong sector coming out of the pandemic. And we all know, you know, based on our own personal behavior, how much we've been traveling and getting in those trips that we couldn't have for uh, two years during the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. And Uh, JetBlue, you know, one of their comments was actually really telling, which was that they felt that um, the U.S. domestic market right now had was in overcapacity, has too many seats, and that this is causing airlines to have to cut prices. And that's really negatively impacting margins domestically. So there's still um, a lot of travel overseas, um, you know, big travel, but that will go too. And I think we've all recognized that travel has become way more expensive over the last couple of years. And so I think we may start to see uh, some downward pressure overall in, in pricing. And that's why I think JetBlue was an important one. So to the original question of, you know, what's what, what are the big drivers for markets? We think it's it's been earnings. Companies have been, you know, if they meet earnings, the stocks are selling off mildly. If they're missing, they're just getting uh, crucified and right. um, the stocks are getting hit really hard. So I think that's been a big driver. Maybe taking a step up and, and looking at sort of the larger economic data, I'm curious what you're seeing there in driving future uh, outlook or, or markets in general. Uh, specifically in Canada, uh, we saw a, uh, a GDP number come in that uh, might be pointing to a technical recession. What are you seeing in there and, and what has uh, your attention? So that's right. Uh, we did see the preliminary GDP estimates from StatsCan, which indicated that we have potentially seen two weak quarters in a row. I think for us to, to call a recession, uh, first of all, those numbers are subject to revision. So right. um, we're, we're not ready to um, sort of make that call right now based on the preliminary data. I think secondly, we'd want to see further weakness in the employment uh, numbers, so jobs data. Um, we've still seen barely any weakness across employment. We've seen a little bit of an increase in unemployment here in Canada. I think that also looking below the headline, very telling that uh, retail sales accommodation and, and food services were also weak. Um, I mean, those are all consumer oriented. They're all, again, um, part of that post-pandemic revenge spending trade. It's all sort of the same trend. And this is indicating a, a change in trend. So it kind of speaks back to or or connects back to my point around JetBlue that we are right. starting to finally see what we would describe as normalization 
I think it's also important to note that the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, is <laughs> certainly uh, taking notice, as, as he should, um, in his testimony this uh, week to the Parliamentary Finance Committee. He noted that the Canadian economy was expected to move into excess supply this year and that that would bring inflation relief. He also said that you know, even though he he's sort of talking out of both sides of his mouth, he's leaving the door open to future rate increases, but people mm-hmm. aren't really putting um, or future policy rate increases. People aren't really putting a lot of weight into that because he also opened the other door, which is to say that um, they may move to cut rates before they hit the or before we hit the target rate of inflation of two percent. So it's a bit of a confusing message, but I think us as market watchers, strategists, economists, um, what we recognize there is it looks like the Bank of Canada may be the first one in the position to cut interest rates. I'm not saying that's happening in in the next two months. Um, I think that's a 2024 story. I think it's just a matter of when is that sort of an earlier, the earlier part of 2024. That's probably an earlier story there than we would expect to see from other central banks. Sounds like somebody who is uh, prioritizing flexibility in his uh, formal statements. Uh, Maybe we'll shift uh, across the ocean and talk about uh, Europe a little bit. Uh, It looks like Europe is slowing down. Um, is Is the Q3 slide in GDP an indication of what's to come? Well, I think that Europe is actually more aligned with Canada than it is with what's happening in the United States when it comes to growth. Europe's also feeling the impact of the slower than expected recovery in in China as well. Um, Inflation has fallen from, I think it peaked over 10%, 10 10.5% to about 2.9%. It's obviously been helped by the decline in, in energy prices. And so we could see the ECB being in a very similar position as the Bank of Canada and, and done for the cycle. And as I mentioned, that sort of leaves the last man standing being uh, the Federal Reserve, which would be the only major central bank that may have another height to come. So I think that the European economy is, is showing kind of same weakness that we're seeing on, on the consumer side. And it's definitely something to watch. And I think it puts confidence back in the fact that uh, monetary policy is working through the system. And I think that was a question six months ago. Got it. And what does that mean for, for currencies in general? So I think you've laid out a base case that there could be more volatility uh, in the future. Historically, that's been accompanied by a strong USD. Uh, if the Fed might have a rate hike or is going to be higher for longer than some of its peers, does this all uh, align for stronger US dollars? Yeah, so maybe let's look back for a moment. Um, the U.S. dollar has been extremely strong uh, vis-a-vis other uh, currencies. Part of that may be um, the risk trade, but I think as I alluded to earlier in our talk today, um, part of that is, I think, very much related to the U.S. economy being right. the relatively strongest economy around the world. And we've seen that in their uh, recent announcement of their GDP growth. So what what we have is, and it is really connects to, to the central bank story, If you see the prospect for the ECB or um, the Bank of Canada to be cutting rates earlier than the Federal Reserve in 2024, then that's become a big headwind for our currencies. And so we've definitely seen weakness in in our dollar, in in the Canadian dollar. Um, I'd also tie that into uh, recent news with respect to the Japanese yen. It's had a very volatile week as well, continues to be weak. 
investors have been very disappointed um, based on expectations that the Bank of Japan would um, remove or sort of, I would say, increase its cap on yields, some sort of change in policy of yield curve control. Um, investors didn't get what they wanted and they really pummeled um, the yen. So so the yen, the euro, that's all contributing to the weakness that we're seeing overall um, in currencies versus the US dollar. And it's important wherever you are in, in the world as investors, it's important for a few reasons. One, as a Canadian investor, if you're investing in foreign markets and you have unhedged um, investments, right. that's actually a positive to have a weaker Canadian dollar once you translate back into your home currency. So on a Canadian dollar basis, um, strength in the U.S. dollar has offset some of the weakness that we've seen in, in foreign markets or U.S. in particular. It's important for Canadians as um, we tend to be consuming a lot in, in U.S. dollars. So it makes sure. goods more expensive. It makes inflation um, it, it adds sort of a, a boost to inflation when we're buying things uh, in foreign currency. But most Canadian companies or many Canadian companies that compete globally um, receive their revenue in U.S. dollars and often have costs in Canadian dollars. So on balance for the TSX, it, it tends to be in actually a, a net positive. It really depends company by company. But for global companies, it's definitely a positive to have a weaker Canadian dollar. It makes us, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the way you look at it, uh, more competitive on a global scale. We've talked uh, a bit about the outlook for rates, and and this is all contingent on inflation. We've certainly seen inflation just come down substantially and dramatically from uh, the uh, earlier prints in the year, where you referenced Europe being uh, north of ten, and uh, and we've seen that come down nicely. Is the inflation story sort of at its end? Is it over? Yeah, like, are we going to talk about this in the next podcast? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um, Can we move on? <laughs> yeah, well, well, well. let's just start with the fact that it's not the first thing we talked about today. That's right, so yeah, sure. <laughs> it's definitely moving down on the scale of importance, um, but it's still important. And I still hold on to this a metaphor around fighting the last mile uh, of inflation. So it was fairly easy to get from the, you know, eight to 10% to three to 4%. But what we're seeing is some stickiness around this level. And there's two things I want to focus on in in the inflation uh, question here and, and thinking about the outlook. The first one is oil, which tends to be the one that people go to first when they're thinking about um, the outlook for inflation, because obviously it does impact. And oil has been a big contributor to lower year-over-year inflation. Uh, If you look at the average price of oil this year versus last year, it's down 17%. But it's been on an uptrend more recently. And, you know, taking us back to our first uh, question today, Oil prices are definitely vulnerable from upward pressure under two scenarios. One is an escalation of the war in the Middle East, which brings in uh, more countries. If additional countries come into the war, like Iran, you could see oil begin to reflect a war premium again, similar to what we saw at the start of the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. The second um, thing that could impact oil prices is 
there's been some downward pressure from weak demand uh, from China because of the sluggish economic recovery that we've seen there. But if the Chinese economy starts to improve and oil consumption increases, then that could also put upward pressure on on oil prices. And we know in general that companies really um, still continue to return capital to shareholders and they're not really spending a lot of money on on development and growing their production. So we we know there's a supply overhang um, as well or, or a supply that sort of dampening the output available to consume. So, so there there are things bubbling there that that could create upward pressure on on oil prices. So I wouldn't count oil out as as a contributor to inflation. Um, the second major one, and this is actually consuming a lot of headlines, which is the trend in wages. You know, mm. 2023 has really been. Um, the year for labor. Uh, We've seen a very significant shift, and I don't think we should understate this or underestimate the importance, but we've seen a very significant shift in the power um, to unions recently that have been able to negotiate fairly large wage increases in the 4 to 5% range each year for the next three years. So when when you think about how that will translate into potential higher costs, somebody has to pay for that. So it's either going to be, if if you think about the car companies, which have been um, the most recent in their negotiations, so it's either going to be us, the consumer, through higher costs, or the car companies are going to eat this in in their margins. Well, I think we know the reality is we're going to share in that, right? We're going to be subject to higher prices. They're going to eat part of it. Um, They'll raise prices as much as they can to not impact demand. But I I do think that that creates some um, inflationary pressure, which which is going to hold inflation up uh, a little bit higher than, um, than, you know, any central banker is targeting that 2%. And so I wanted to spend like another minute here on um, just to give some of the numbers to give people a sense. But the UAW is, is has been the big one. They um, were able to negotiate a 25% increase over four years with an 11% bump this year in wages. And this is in the context of, um, and it sounds like a big number, which of course it is, but this all sort of really goes back to 2008 when as part of the uh, auto bailout, wage increases have really been minimal over that last 15-year period. So right. this is a bit of a catch-up over that uh, time. There was a news story yesterday in uh, on Bloomberg, and it was I think the headline was something like, UAW scores biggest wage hike this century in year of union wins. And you know, it's it's just interesting to see um, the importance that um, these wage increases have, you know, really um, in, in in our news flow and in thinking about inflation and. The the auto workers has been the most recent, but and and by the way, we've seen this here in in Canada as well. Unifor, which represents our uh, unionized workers in the automotive industry, they were able to get similar uh, wage increases, and in addition, some guarantees for uh, additional production here in in Canada. And outside of the auto uh, workers, we saw it with the healthcare workers in the US, we've seen it with UPS drivers, rail workers, and of course, the screenwriters as, as well. Right. So this has been fairly prevalent. Um, this is going to be uh, for sure, uh, filtering in through our inflation numbers, one way or another. And that's a really long way to say the inflation story is not over. 
And we'll continue to talk about it on these podcasts, Leslie. But maybe we'll wait uh, for the next one for any uh, more comments. So thanks so much for coming on. And I really appreciate you walking through how you see the markets uh, and what you're paying attention to. Thanks for having me once again, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.